Stuff to Blow Your Mind, New York Comic Con, Stranger Things. Yes, it all comes together on October 6th from 7 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. at Hudson Mercantile in Manhattan. If you're in the area, join us for Stuff to Blow Your Mind live Stranger Science as we explore the exciting science and tantalizing pseudoscience underlying the hit Netflix show Stranger Things. Stuff You Missed in History Class has a show right after us in the same venue so you can really double down on your stuff. And hey, the three of us would love to meet you. This is the opportunity to do it. Learn more and buy your tickets at NewYorkComicCon.com slash NYCC hyphen presents. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. And hey, we both just saw the movie It in the movie theater. And this is rare because you don't get to the movies as much as I do. Right. But we have both been able to see a movie in the theater and experience it pretty recently. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, a lot of people are checking it out. Uh, it. It's uh, it's become quite a hit. So when I was at the movies watching this, there was this woman in the theater who was in the back a couple rows from me. And she just kept screaming every time Pennywise would show up, like this howling scream. And this caused her then, she would laugh in response to her own screaming. And everyone else in the theater, then would laugh as well. So there's this like weird moment where like everybody was laughing over this movie of these just horrible depictions. Then I saw that movie Mother a week later. Mm-hmm. This is the Darren Aronofsky. Film. Yeah, yeah. And that didn't happen at all. No one laughed. No, there was no nervous laughter. There was no screaming. It was just this unrelenting, traumatic, uncomfortable horror playing out in front of you. And so I'm wondering, is there some kind of metric of successful horror here? Or is it just like different subgenres when people feel like it's okay to laugh nervously versus they're just enraptured with, with what is so scary in front of them? Well, yeah. And then, of course, these are two very different films, I understand, with with kind of different uh, target audiences. Yeah. So when I very much so. account, but yeah, I, I share some of your, um, concerns about my, my fellow viewers. I mean, this is a reason I, one of the reasons I don't go to movie theaters that much is because ultimately I would rather watch anything in my living room. Um, it, it's only the whole timing aspect, uh, of, of like a film you're really excited about. That's going to get me to the, go to the theater. Cause otherwise I'm not crazy about the theater. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it tends to be overpriced you got to go if if you're if, if if I go and my and I go with my wife then I have we have to get a sitter it's just a whole whole pain and uh, and you know my life moves so fast now at our age that it's like a movie like when you're a kid if you didn't see Batman in the theater it's like forever in the future you had to wait like a year yeah. now it's like 2 months yeah in 2 months like that's gone like that mm-hmm. i mean, like movie after movie I'm like, oh, that Marvel film seems kind of kind of cool. Maybe I'll check that out. And then it's on, uh, you know, direct streaming. Mm-hmm. But of the many things that bother me about the uh, the movie uh, theater going experience, there's certainly the the audience reaction to not only scares but to just graphic violence in general. Mm-hmm. You're you're watching it. You're immersed. Something scary or violent happens, and someone responds with laughter. It throws me out of the experience of watching the film. But then I also have this weird moment where I'm like, what? Are we as a species who, where, what have we done culturally so wrong? Yeah. How do, what is our relationship with depictions of violence in our, in our fiction 
that 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 allows this to happen. That I'm hearing somebody cackle uh, while someone's being like bludgeoned to death or something. Well, I have to admit, Robert, I am probably one of the people that would annoy you in that respect because during it there were points where I giggled gleefully. Uh, but I think when I think back on it, it was more out of the sheer excitement that as a horror fan. They were able to make a film that was actually as dark and horrifying as the novel. And I was so I, – I, I thought I was going to be disappointed going into it. And you know this. Horror fans, we're like junkies. We're always on the lookout for the next good story that's going to come out in the genre, right? We're just always hoping, like, oh, will this be it? Will this be the mm-hmm. next cool thing? And more often than not, we're disappointed. So I think when I was giggling, it was more out of happiness that this thing wasn't failing my expectations, you know? I've been getting a lot of questions about what you're talking about in relation to the movie It because it's been Mm -hmm. so popular. A lot of people are saying to me because they know that I write horror and that I'm a fan of horror – what is it that you like about horror? What, you know, they, they say it to me as if like I'm a damaged human being and they need me to explain, you know, that I'm not. Uh, and I guess for me, I see storytelling as a way of learning through the surrogate figures that are playing out in the story in front of you, right? And this is essentially our method for explaining to each other how the world works. So cautionary tales like horror seem to me to be culture designed to enhance our survival rate. And something like it is a glimpse at something that's larger than us because obviously it's not a real clown running around and murdering people. It's some kind of monstrous cosmic entity, yeah? Mm -hmm. So you've got this whole idea – that there's something beyond our understanding and something that scares us by simply showing us that we are just not as significant as we like to think we are. And there's something oddly zen about that that I like. When you learn to be content with your lack of significance and you just can accept that you don't understand everything and you never will. And I think there's room for laughter there as well. Yeah, I, I would agree with with that. Uh, you know, I I write horror as well, and um, I don't think of myself as a as a horror writer per se. Like, I think it's more a matter of exploring the real through the unreal. And if you were exploring something that is inherently dark or inherently fantastic, inherently uh, ridiculous or surreal, I mean, it, that's going to color your unreal uh, method of exploring it. But yeah, I think it's more about. Uh, it's it's more about what that that uh, that end point like what are you trying to explore about the real world right so then let's back up for a second here because we're both practitioners and fans of this but there's something going on here with the human experience when people are laughing at horror movies so let's try to unpack this and look at the history biology and psychology of laughter yeah because I, th- I think the main issue here is that you can either say I'm the only person in this theater who's sane and everyone else is having an insane or illogical reaction to the horror. That's one way to approach it. But the more likely ex- explanation is that what is happening here is normal. And if we look at it, it will reveal something about our relationship to humor, our relationship to horror and just the human experience itself. All right. So let's let's start with just laughter and humor in general. So. Studies have shown that various apes, rats, dogs, birds, dolphins, they all do something that resembles laughter. But, of course, everything is a little bit more complicated with humans. And laughter itself is complicated. 
you know it when you hear it. It's that mix of uh, rhythmic, vocalized, uh, you know, involuntary actions. It, it begins with a set of gestures, a crack in the facial features, and then the emergence of sound. And that exact sound is gonna gonna vary tremendously. I mean, you've you, you've all heard countless versions of laughter, you know, like the, the deep resonating uh, laughter of, say, a Brian Blessed. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, who, who played, the, of course, the, the, the character Vulcan in uh, Flash Gordon. Yeah. The uh, tittering laughter of, uh, say, the character Knox Harrington or David Thewlis, uh, played by David Thewlis in uh, The Big Lebowski. Yeah. Or, you know, any example of sardonic laughter, or sexy laughter. I mean, the list goes on and on. But when we, we belt out a, a hearty laugh, we, we feel it throughout the body, uh, even the, the, the arm, leg, and trunk muscles. Fifteen facial muscles contract, and we feel the unmistakable stimulation of the zygomatic muscle, the main lifting mechanism of your upper lip. Meanwhile, the epiglottis partially closes the larynx, uh, interfering with the respiratory system, making air intake irregular. You gasp. In extreme situations, uh, you, you even have your, your tear ducts kicking in and contributing tears um, as well. Maybe your, your nose is running. It becomes this – we often forget that like a really true full-body laugh, it's like being gassed with something. Yeah. At, in extreme situations, you pee your pants. Yeah, it happens. Yeah. Now – of course, for you to laugh, uh, you need some sort of stimuli. And the most common stimuli is, of course, humor. But humor itself is a tricky subject to understand, though we've been, we've been banging our heads against it for thousands of years. So I thought it might be helpful to just go ahead and roll through a few basic theories regarding uh, humor so that we can move forward. And I think as we go, we'll find that in trying to, um, explain what humor is and how we react to humor, we also get into that area of horror. Plato, Aristotle, Thomas Hobbes, they all argued the superiority theory of humor, which states that we simply find the misfortune of others amusing. Yeah, this is schadenfreude, the yeah. great German term for finding pleasure in somebody else's misfortune. Yeah, and if you you see someone trip and you laugh, or you trip and someone laughs at you, this seems like a, a perfectly solid explanation for everything that's occurring. Now, meanwhile, Sigmund Freud, he championed the, championed the relief theory, which states that comedy is a way for people to release suppressed thoughts and emotions safely. And this can include everything from, uh, you know, cutting a slice of, um, you know, comfort, uh, you know, controversial, say, uh, social commentary or just a simple fart joke. Now, Immanuel Kant uh, fl- favored the incongruity theory, which uh, suggests that humor blooms when people notice the disconnect between their expectations and the actual payoff. I went in to smell that flower on your lapel, and it squirted water. That was unexpected. That was hilarious. Mm-hmm. Now, one that one of the more uh, recent theories that uh, that I find quite attractive is the benign violation theory, and this holds uh, that humor arises when benign subject matter and violent or dangerous subject matter overlapped, overlap, and a laugh and the laugh itself is a way to communicate to others that a previously perceived threat is not a real danger. Now, none of this is a subtle debate. You can argue for any one of these, and maybe there's a little truth in all of them. But especially for our purposes here, I do really like the uh, benign violation theory because it explains humor and laughter in terms of communication. Uh, after all, we are social organisms. I mean, we, we band together. Uh, that's where we found our survival uh, in, a, in a dangerous world of limited resources. So it makes sense that a, a loud vocal expression, not only a vocal expression, but a very physical expression, as we've described, would have some sort of uh, a communicative role. 
So when we drill down even further, we look to the work of a guy named Robert Provine. He's a neuroscientist and psychology professor at the University of Maryland in Baltimore County. And he conducted laughter research for this book that he wrote. And he observed real-world laughter in more than a thousand episodes in public places. And Provine described his approach as trying to understand laughter from the position of a visiting extraterrestrial. So essentially, what would an alien make of the sounds and faces we're making when we're laughing? So he first defined what a laugh is, and he quantified it as a series of short vowel-like notes or syllables that are each 75 milliseconds long and are repeated at regular intervals about 210 milliseconds apart. Now, there's no specific vowel sound that defines laughter, but similar vowel sounds are typically used for the notes of a given laugh, right? So we're not going, ah, oh, e, i, you know, like you're not combining all Mm -hmm. the various different vowels. It's usually the same one over and over again. So there's usually a strong harmonic structure to laughter with each being a multiple of a low frequency. So when you look at laughter's harmonic structure on a sound spectrogram, you actually find that there are evenly spaced stacks of short horizontal lines in the spectrum. And the notes and the internote intervals between them, those carry the actual information that helps us identify a sound as laughter. So for instance, if you were to use like editing software and you cut out the spaces between laugh notes, you would still recognize it as laughter. But if you cut out the notes themselves, it just sounds like a long breathy sigh. Essentially, All human laughter is a variation on this basic form, and we typically start seeing it in babies around three and a half to four months of age. And Provine also found the following stats. He found that less than 20% of the laughter incidents he cataloged were in response to something that was actually funny. Instead, people more often are giggling or chuckling at innocuous statements, like, for instance, I see your point. And then somebody goes, ha, 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 And what's even more interesting is that the person who produced the laugh-provoking statement was 46% more likely to be the one who chuckled themselves. So it's more likely that people tell a joke and then they laugh at themselves than somebody else laughs at them. In only eight of the 1,200 recorded episodes that Provine looked at, did they find that laughter interrupted what someone was saying. 99.9% of the time, laughter occurs in these tidy, natural breaks. And this is weird because I think I'm probably the the 0.01% of the population then who laughs in ways that totally interrupt conversation. Anybody who's listened to me on these podcasts will probably attest to that. Also, I'm the most awkward person to go to the movies with because I laugh a lot inappropriately. I got dirty looks in the theater for laughing maniacally at movies like American Psycho and Hannibal. Well, um, I mean, American Psycho and Hannibal, you you do have to admit that they play with black comedy a little bit. That's what I thought. Yeah. Yeah. As I was watching them, I was like, oh, this is supposed to be dark humor. And I was laughing in response to it. And people were looking at me like I was a madman. Like, can you, you're laughing at this naked man running down the hall with a chainsaw? No, but that scene is legitimately hilarious because yeah. they're going to such pains to uh, hide his genitalia. Uh, because <laughs> And that made an otherwise terrifying, uh, otherwise terrifying scene uh, comedic. Because they're because of what they're clearly doing 
from a blocking standpoint. There's a lot that's silly about that scene. Yeah, <laughs> and, and don't even get started on, on Hannibal. There's a lot yeah. that's silly in that as well. Yeah. Now, I, as far as uh, laughter interrupting conversation, uh, and, and he, even with yourself, I, you know, I, I, I tend not to interpret people's laughter in conversation as an interruption. Maybe it's, I, I kind of think of it in the same way that you generally wouldn't say that uh, applause interrupts uh, a performance. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, it just, it seems like we, if, if you're engaging with a conversation with somebody and there's laughter happening on one or both sides, that that is factoring into the communication, right? Unless it's just occurring with, you know, in a state of madness. Yeah, exactly. That's how I see it. Uh, so, for instance, I think the stats actually back this up too, and this is why I tend to laugh the way I do, but uh, probably more unconsciously than conscious. It indicates that most people use laughter in the same way we use verbal pauses. And what I mean by that is rather than quietly wait to respond while we're collecting our thoughts, we're using the stilted laughter to hold our place in the conversation. It's the same thing as when people use like or you know as verbal pauses in a in a sentence at, mm-hmm. that they're saying out loud so that they can kind of compose themselves first. And as podcasters, we have to admit – not only do we do this like every human who communicates in any language does because this is just a natural part of human communication, but boy, do we get a lot of messages about it. I don't know. I haven't really noticed any messages about it uh, recently. Maybe not recently. Yeah, maybe yeah. it's because we've been doing the show for a long time. Well, I remember when I first came on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, mm-hmm. I got a lot of notes about it. Well, I, there is an exercise in sort of – you know, cutting down one's use of, of those words. But also I think people that listen to this show and certain other shows like this realize that it is, for the most part, an organic conversation. Yeah. Uh, granted, it's not the same as a full-blown conversation. It's kind of a performance conversation with notes on hand. That yeah, would be a very weird conversation if you were having – if you were trying to talk to somebody and they were referring to note cards the whole time. Yeah. But we're also we're not a 100 percent scripted show, and if you have if it's 100 percent scripted, then yeah, you can you can cut out all of those likes and yes and whatever. Exactly, and I think there's different expectations of what people think we might be doing on this show, right? Like some people think that everything is completely scripted and that we're just reading the whole time to each other, and then other people think that it's totally extemporaneous and we have all of these facts in our head and are just spouting them off back and forth to each other. Really, it's a mix of the two. Right. So Provine, back to his research, he proved essentially that laughter is inherently social and it's a tool of communication and it's not always or often actually in relation to something that's supposed to be funny. He found that participants were actually 30 times more likely to laugh in the presence of others than they were when they were, quote, truly alone. What he meant by this is not counting in response to TV shows or other media. So when we're totally alone, apparently we seem to hardly laugh at all. Yeah, that that certainly matches up with my experience of watching comedies. Like, I, I really don't like watching comedies by myself oh, okay, because yeah. there's, there's very little joy to be had trying to laugh or or inev- inevitably sitting there not laughing while something humorous takes place. Yeah, I think... Maybe this is why I surround myself with animals, because even if my wife isn't home, I spend half my day talking to them and laughing at them or like Uh having like little interactions with them. And they're just like, dude, we don't understand English. You know, they understand (laughs) laughter probably, but not necessarily whatever I'm saying to them. You know, I, I just 
am, am weirdly inherently communicative in that way. I think if I was by myself and just laughing and talking to myself, it would feel stranger to me. I mean, that's the ultimate beauty of having any kind of pet around is it gives us license to sit around and talk to ourselves. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's also worth noting just broadly about this that social scientists have confirmed too that laugh tracks on television shows actually do increase audience laughter. And not only that, they increase people's rating of comedic material. So we have yet another social aspect that's going on here with laughter. I really do not like the idea that science is backing up the use laugh of laugh tracks. tracks so. Yeah, it's true. We have an entire brain stuff video episode all about uh, laugh tracks and the history of them that Joe actually worked on. Huh. And it's, uh, it's really good. Oh, cool. We'll have to throw a link to that on the landing page for this episode at stuff to blow your mind.com. And we should consider getting a laugh track for this, uh, this show. That's a great idea. Yeah. yeah. I, I know the listeners would hate that. Are there any podcasts out there with laugh tracks? Surely there must be. Huh. That would be interesting. Serial's got to have a laugh track, right? Huh. <laughs> okay. So there's also an evolutionary theory that's related to the whole laughter thing. And it was proposed in 2005 in the Quarterly Review of Biology. And this was by Matthew Gervais and his advisor, David Sloan Wilson. Basically, they looked at the research of this 19th century French physician named Guillaume Duchesne. He was this guy. Ah, yes. This is the, uh, the, the electrocution of the facial muscle. Yes. Yeah. So he would go around and zap people's faces with this little electronic mischief box. Well, he wouldn't just go around and do it. Don't, it you're was making like him in into a hospital. A, yeah, you're making him into a psychopath. No, he wasn't just going up to strangers <laughs> and doing it. Sorry. Yeah, he was doing it to, to willing volunteers in a mm-hmm. hospital. But he wanted to see what would happen. And the volts evoked a certain kind of smiling. Uh, and this is what Robert was referring to earlier. This is where the zygomatic major muscles get raised uh, along the corners of our mouths, Right. But he could never get the mischief box to reproduce the kind of laugh or smile we get when we actually find something truly funny. This laugh is way more complex. And yeah, it uses the zygomatic major muscles, but it also uses the obicularis oculi muscles. And those are the muscles that are around our eyes that form crow's feet. This is why you hear that phrase, a real smile is in your eyes. The first smile, the one that's just with your mouth, that's just what we do to be polite. I call it a dead smile. Mm -hmm. And it's unfortunately what I usually end up producing when I'm asked to smile for a camera, right? So like anytime I'm whatever, like somebody wants to take a picture, I had the hardest time genuinely smiling. And there's always like somebody on the other end that's just like, oh, why can't you just smile? What is, what are you doing? You know, that kind of thing. And it's because I'm conscious of the dead smile look. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just the classic grip and grin smile where someone just says, hey, smile for the photo, take the picture. Whereas, uh, you know, a, 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 an actual professional photographer is going to try and get a legitimate, uh, you know, emotional response from you and when they're taking your picture. That's difficult. Your wife's a photographer. That must be a huge part of the job. Yeah. And um, I can't imagine it's easy. No, it's, it's always a challenge because you're always dealing with a, a different person. Uh, with, and some people are going to be natural, uh, laughers. They're, you know, they're going to, they're going to naturally let that, uh, that inner portion of themselves out. Other people are going to be more closed off and they're going to give you that dead smile and you've got to sort of, you know, all but carve it out of their face. (laughs) So Gervais and Wilson, they posited that two to four million years ago, we human beings evolved into having what they're referring to as Duchesne laughter. This is when we actually find something funny. 
But why did we do it? Well, the idea is that it was a signal that everything was okay and that our danger was low and our needs were met. Ah, and that lines up with the benign violation theory. Exactly. But then, sometime since then, the dead smile laughter emerged as we became more cognitively developed. Now, the idea here is that we learn to mimic the spontaneity of laughter so that we could try to take advantage of its effects and manipulate other people into thinking everything is okay when it isn't. So this uh, is like the little finger form of laughing. This laughing. is why your boss thinks that uh, that every joke uh, they've ever told is hilarious. So true. So true. This is absolutely that. Yeah. I, th- I immediately thought of bosses in the past. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, but no matter how hard we try, we usually can't get it right because of the whole eyes thing. So there's another neuroscientist that backs this up. His name is V.S. Ramachandran. Oh, yeah. He comes up a lot. So he theorizes something similar. He says that laughter evolved as a signal to both ourselves and others that what may appear to be dangerous or threatening actually is not. So today, when we nervously laugh, it's because we're signaling ourselves that whatever horrible thing that we've encountered isn't really as horrible as it appears. So that may be what's going on when people are laughing when they're watching horror movies, right? So it jumps out. It's this crazy clown with fangs. The lady screams, but then she laughs because she's like, oh, it's just a movie. I'm okay. So this may be why psychologists actually classify humor as one of our quote, mature defense mechanisms. We invoke it to guard ourselves against overwhelming anxiety. If we can laugh, for instance, at traumatic events that are in our own lives, perhaps then that we can endure them. And it diminishes our suffering and attempts to convince us that we're going to be able to make it through that trauma. But then here's what the question becomes. Is laughter creating an expectation that we're going to be all right? Or is laughter only possible when we actually believe things aren't as bad as they seem? All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue this exploration. All right, we're back. You know, you were talking about the the power of laughter. And on a recent episode of uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind Trailer Talk, our our Friday 11 a.m. Eastern Time Facebook Live show, we had a trailer. We featured the trailer for The Name of the Rose. Yeah. Uh, and one of the plot lines in that is this this idea of what is humor and should humor be uh, permitted, should humor be encouraged uh, by the church? The idea being that if you can if you can laugh at anything, mm-hmm. you can laugh at the church, you can laugh at God. And if, if and in doing so, are you taking away some of its power? Oh, interesting. Well, it seems to me that it would be inherently useful to the church if the idea was to provide its followers with solace that everything's going to be OK. Or that it's not going to be okay, and then you're going to continually need to uh, pray to God about it. You definitely shouldn't laugh. Yeah, well, there's, there's a whole. There's a, this is a it gets into the whole theological deep end. Of, yeah, did Christ laugh? Uh, is it okay to laugh at certain things, etc.? And I'm not sure there are any uh, clear cut answers on that. Well, turning away from laughter for a second before we converge back together and try to figure out what's going on here when people are laughing at horror movies, let's talk about scares and fear. Remember, anxiety and fear are a product, not a failure, 
of being perceptive. Perceptive people are the ones who are most often anxious. The most fearful among us are often those who have the most imaginative intelligences. Yet most of us respond to being frightened as if it's embarrassing, right? It's this petty emotion we don't want other people to see, as if the notion of being afraid is somehow indicative of our insecurity about our control over our own lives. Well, we have to remember that evolution favors uh, false positives, not false negatives. Because if, if, I mean, the classic example is if there's some sort of a large carnivore hunting you and you're, a, you know, an ancient human, uh, I'm, prior to you know, any kind of advanced technology, then if your fellow uh, you know cave person, Thog, jumps out at you and you think for a second he's a tiger and you react accordingly, like that, that's a positive survival benefit. Yeah. Whereas if uh, an actual tiger jumps out at you and you're just like, oh, it's Tharg again, well, then you're boned. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's related, I think, maybe to nervous laughter. It's been noted in psychological experiments when subjects are placed under a high degree of emotional stress. And this is specifically when they're thinking about perceived harm, not to themselves, but to others. Now, I've got a mortifying thought here that may be one answer to why people are laughing in movie theaters. What if the person laughing at horror has what's called pathological laughter? This is actually when there's damage to a wide variety of brain regions and it produces abnormal laughter. So, for instance, like the most common cases of this are pseudobulbar palsy, gelastic epilepsy, and then just psychiatric illness in general. They found it in reported cases of multiple sclerosis, ALS, and cases where people have tumors or lesions in the limbic system and the brainstem. So it's just this like odd, abnormal, uncontrollable laughter. You know, I don't want to engage too much in judging strangers that I have no real insight on, but... Uh, when I saw Baby Driver recently, there was somebody in the theater who was laughing almost continuously through the film, not just the, the, the humorous moments and the fun moments, but also just the, the moments of intense violence that pop up here and there in that really? movie. And, and looking back at it, I'm like, yeah, I could, I could see that individual's reactions being a product of some sort of, uh, uh, you know, abnormal laughter scenario. Yeah, I think sometimes my experience at the movie theater has been that at least especially in the last 10 years, it seems to be more that like it's this communal experience where a lot of people feel like that kind of like out loud reaction is allowed and part of the experience. You know, I remember going to see one of the paranormal activity movies Uh and there was this guy behind us who was just like shouting at the screen the whole time like, oh, no, don't go in there. Don't. Don't no don't let that baby touch that dog. No, don't do that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's something kind of magical about that experience. Like I haven't been in a theater with that recently. Uh but when it's authentic, when the individual is speaking to the movie theater uh kind of organically and they're not showing off, they're not you know trying to do some sort of a riffing thing and be yeah. about the life of the party. It is kind of, it is kind of magical because I, f- I feel like, well, they're, they're more alive with this film than I am. Like I, I'm really into it, but maybe I'm sort of checking out now and again and thinking, oh, well, what's that actor been in recently? It's neat how they shot this scene. Strange how they adapted this, uh, from the novel, but this person is living in it. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Maybe it's just what kind of media consumers we are too. Mm-hmm. That might be part of it. Well, all right. Let's try to bring it all together back around. What is going on? When that person in the theater is laughing, what are they laughing at? 
Seems like there's no definitive answer to this question yet. Not a lot of research has been done on the neurological basis for nervous laughter. But there are two popular theories that revolve around the idea that laughter is inherently social. So laughter is sending messages to people around us. Likewise, smiling in socially awkward situations seems to demonstrate that you have nothing to do with any external problem. Yeah, and, and this is, again, why I favor the benign violation theory, because if it's not social, then why is it disrupting my movie-going experience? Yeah, absolutely. So the first type of message that could be going on with nervous laughter seems to be an expression of fearful submission. So we actually see this in macaques when they feel threatened or dominated. Their laughter is accompanied by evasive or submissive body movements. And this is used to admit their fear and communicate their desire to avoid conflict. This was actually first noted by primatologist Signe Prushoft. He was the first one who primarily studied rhesus macaques along these lines. He noticed that they also bared their teeth in a smile during these social interactions. And this wasn't a signal to begin a fight or anything, but it was to dispel tension so that their aggressor would become more friendly. The smile was a display of submission to the more dominant member of their their group. Yeah, that's interesting to think of a viewer of a horror movie reacting in a way where they're they're submitting. They're saying like, oh, Jason Voorhees. Right. Please don't. I submit. And then you realize, oh, wait, I don't have to submit to Jason Voorhees because he's pretend. Look, Pennywise, I'm laughing. Don't eat me. (laughs) We humans seem to have adapted the smile to express approval, joy, compassion, sometimes sympathy. But when we recognize a dangerous situation, we may still smile at it. And this line of thought about laughter trends toward evolutionary history. Now, the second idea that's going on here is, I mentioned this earlier, the mature defense mechanism that represents our denial of fear. So with this type of laughter, we're actually trying to convince ourselves that everything's okay, and it's a signal that we can endure whatever trauma is in front of us. So humor seems to be a way to put our fears into perspective. It allows us to strengthen our ability to confront them. And then if you can laugh at something like that, well, that surely must show you've got some courage or at least our, you know, you might wish for that courage because laughter seems to banish anxiety. I'm thinking of the classic scene of like two gunslingers standing each other down and they're both stone faced mm-hmm. and then one laughs or snickers. And it's like that's that's the the indicator, right? It's the same thing as what's going on with these macaques, basically. Mm-hmm. Like uh, it's actually it's the opposite of what's going on with these macaques where it's like rather than showing that I'm submissive, it's like. I'm not afraid of this. I'm so not afraid of this that I'm going to laugh at how silly this situation is. Yeah, and I, th- I think we've seen that in various uh, cinematic showdowns. Like occasionally, like the, the tension will be so, uh, you know, grim that somebody will break it with, you know, by, by say making a kissy face or something. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So there's actually an experiment that speaks to this in which volunteers were asked to behead a mouse. They were actually like human beings were asked to volunteer to behead a mouse and their faces were photographed while they did it. And when they did, the photographs showed that they had pained, uncomfortable smiles. This is like the creepiest thing ever that Ugh. all these people were smiling while they were cutting the heads off these mice. I'm assuming these were dead mice. I don't know, man. I don't know. I I'm, I'm going to go with that assumption. Yeah. 
Now, the first idea that we talked about, that one trended towards evolutionary history. This line of thought is more accepted by psychologists and neuroscientists. And actually, Freud, for instance, was a big proponent of this theory. So maybe, though, here's here's another backup. And this gets back to what you're talking about with forms of humor. Maybe this kind of nervous laughter is an expression of incongruous emotional reactions. For instance, when we feel like we might be overwhelmed by our emotions, whether they're positive or negative, we might express the opposite emotion to have a dampening effect and kind of restore some kind of emotional balance. It's interesting. That reminds me of the the theory on the, the pinching of baby cheeks. What's that? Uh, this is the idea that occasionally you'll encounter something so cute. It might be a baby. It might be a puppy, a kitten. So cute that you have to hurt it to like <laughs> restore balance. So the baby's so cute, you just gotta pinch it. You've gotta basically assault the baby so that you, you won't just completely explode. There used to be a bit about this on that old MTV sketch show, The State. They oh, had yeah? a whole bit about this old lady who was so, who, who her grandson was so cute that she had to try to crush his face. Uh-huh. And the, the, the people in the store that she was in were trying desperately to prevent her from doing so. And it turns into this whole farcical adventure. Yeah. I mean, I've certainly felt the, like the, the weird urge to, to bite an infant. For yeah. its cuteness or a, you know, a puppy or a kitten before. It's, it's a very strange, uh, You're situation. Right. Yeah. Maybe we should return to that. That, that is an interesting, that's, uh, uh, an interesting, like, crossing of wires in the brain. Kind of similar to our episode on the call of the void. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll eat you up. We love you so. Uh, yeah. From the wild things. All right. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. All right. So, um, I think at this point I want to come back around to, to some of the theories we mentioned earlier, uh, talking more expressly about humor and say, all right, how do they, how do they line up with horror? So first of all, uh, incongruity theory, which again suggests that humor blooms when people notice the disconnect between their expectations and the actual payoff. I can certainly see where this could come into, sp- into play, especially with all the misdirections and jump scares that one encounters in modern horror movies and in haunted houses. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, horror films may actually be a phenomena of both incongruity and transgression. So maybe we're laughing when there's this incongruous event that goes against our expectations or veers from harmlessness into actual potential dangerous territory. It also brings to mind a Raskin's somatic script-based theory of humor. And this idea is that humor involves the activation of two opposing scripts, such as sex, no sex, good, bad. And humor comes from the incongruity here of these two activated scripts. So Mm -hmm. like danger, but not danger because I'm in a theater. Right. Now, as far as this superiority theory of humor goes, I think there's certainly plenty of misfortune to take pleasure in in most horror movies either if you're kind of a terrible person or if the movie encourages you to take pleasure in the mutilation and death of its characters, which we especially see in so many 1980s slasher films, right? Yep. You have, like, the bad boy, the bad girl, you know, these various uh, archetypical kids that the, the movie is basically saying, look, they deserve to be killed by Jason or whoever the slasher is, and only a couple of characters are above that treatment. Yeah, slasher movies in particular use this kind of Old Testament 
punishment system yeah. as being an excuse for why there's such horrible violence being enacted. And it's supposed to encourage us to, you know, be, be okay with it. Yeah, it's, it's a very, it's certainly a very sacrificial feel to it. So the next time you watch a horror movie, ask yourself, which of these characters are are okay to die according to the film and which ones are not. Yeah, or and like who am I made to identify with? Yeah, and right? then, yeah, who's it's a weird. real person. In some situations you're made to identify with Freddy Krueger or Jason Voorhees rather than the the like sexually active kids that they're slaughtering. Yeah, there there was a wonderful treatment of this years ago. There's a Michael Caine film titled A Shock to the System. Oh, I've never seen this. Oh, it's quite good because he plays uh, just a normal guy who suddenly realizes that he can kill people, that he can kill people in his life that he doesn't like, that inconvenience him, or that there's to whom there's some advantage, uh, you know, to murdering them. And and he starts killing these people. And f- for most of the film, he's killing people that we uh, we see through his eyes and therefore think, yeah, they should go. They're annoying. They're terrible. And we follow that up to a point. And then we realize, okay, I'm not cool with you killing anybody else anymore, Michael Caine. Huh. This, have you seen Harry Brown? I don't think I have. It sounds very similar. It's huh. another Michael Caine movie. Uh, Harry Brown is like Michael Caine is a senior citizen who lives in block housing. And uh, he essentially becomes a vigilante oh, wow. and just starts like murdering criminals in his neighborhood, even though he's like this this kind of doddering old senior citizen. Huh. Yeah, it all comes down to the question, is the character or the slasher murdering the wrong sort of person? Yeah. All right. And then uh, let's talk about relief theory. This states that comedy, again, is a way for people to release suppressed thoughts and emotions safely. So for and this kind of gets into the similar territory. So. You have this cardboard cutout of a person. Let's say it's a, I don't know, let's say it's a, a boss or or something more mundane, like a rude driver. Okay. Like, without a lot of character investment, we're generally okay with the idea of Jason Voorhees killing a rude driver or, or some other slasher person killing the bad boss, whatever the, 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 you know, the crude cardboard cutout of a human is. This is why the Hannibal Lecter stuff is so popular because in a lot of ways, he's like an anti-hero. People see him positively, even though he's the serial killer that eats people because he only, well, he tends to only eat people who are rude. Right. And yeah, I mean, he, he eats the rude. It, for us, denizens of the real world, uh, it is, um, it's, it's quite wrong for us to eat rude people just because they're rude. Yeah. It's at least a little bit icky to fantasize about eating rude people because they are rude. But we can safely get that same sort of relief by watching Hannibal Lecter do it instead. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So all of this leads us to the connection between horror and humor. And this seems to have become increasingly popular in our fiction in the last few decades. Think of how many – like goofy horror movies there are now, right? And right. the the sort of silly combination of these. So I found this actual uh, quote from one of our favorites here at Stuff to Blow Your Mind, Stuart Gordon. Yeah. He's the maker of films like Reanimator, From Beyond, and Castle Freak. Uh, and he tells this story about how Alfred Hitchcock referred to Psycho as a comedy. Huh. Uh, and he said that 
Hitchcock's point was that there's this very fine line between getting someone to laugh and getting them to scream. And so perhaps this is why many creators like Gordon himself now are finding it best to just alternate between the two rather than going with like a straight comedy or straight horror film. They're introducing both in the same context. Hmm. But why? What's going on? They, they're supposed to be different, right? Horror oppresses us. Comedy liberates us. Horror turns the screws. Comedy releases it. Comedy elates us. Horror stimulates depression, paranoia, and dread. They're supposed to be opposites. I don't know. I, after this episode and talking about all these weird convergences between the two, it really feels like we stand at an intersection of uh, of Horror Street and Humor Boulevard. You yeah, know? I think so. And the, the traffic's flowing both ways. Well, and if we bring it all the way back around to It, where we started talking about this, the trope of the evil clown plays with this whole relationship of humor and horror. Mm-hmm. And it creates in itself this incongruous object of laughter, right? Yeah. So it's no wonder that people were laughing while we were watching this new movie. Yeah, and you know another factor that comes to mind is uh, is that uh, you have individuals that are watching the film alone, uh, and then you have individuals who are watching it more socially. Like I was there with somebody, but we weren't really talking uh, during the film. Mm-hmm. Other people were having more of a like a social engagement with the picture. Yeah, and you of course can get into a lot of arguments about to what degree that's 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 sort of breaking the rules of going to a movie theater, but still there's. There does seem to sometimes be this this drastic difference between their social engagement with each other during the film. Well, speaking of social engagement, Robert, if people out there want to socially engage with us, how can they do it? Oh, well, they can head on over to any number of our social media accounts. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram. Uh, we're, uh, we have a group even. Yep. You go to Facebook, you look up the Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module. You have to ask to join, but you'll probably get in. And then you can, uh, you can interact, uh, not only with us, but you can interact with, with other like-minded, uh, listeners to the show. Yeah. So I'd like to ask you listeners, let us know what you think about this whole thing with people laughing at horror movies, whether it's in the theater or not. Do you think the theories that we presented are, you know, potentially valid or is there something else going on here that we missed? And how does your experience with a horror movie and a haunted house or haunted attraction, how do those differ? Because for my own point, point of view i don't really laugh while watching a horror movie generally Mm -hmm. but i certainly laugh after being scared at a haunted house like there's for for me there's an experiential difference between the cinematic scare and the the real world pretend scare yeah yeah absolutely and one last way you can get in touch with us about this is the old-fashioned way that's on email at blow the mind at howstuffworks.com For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.